Well, good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach. Hope that you are doing great. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 23. 1 Corinthians 10, 23. While you're turning there, I want to tell you a little story. So uh, when I was in college to help pay for college, I worked as a server in a very fancy restaurant. Okay, we had to have like ties. We had to know an extensive wine list. It was very exclusive, very, very nice. You might have heard of it. It's called Chili. Now, as I was a waiter at Chili's and I'm going around doing my waiter thing, I was an excellent waiter, okay, because I love interacting with people. And so I'm singing the baby back ribs song, bringing people their awesome blossoms. I would spin trays while talking to tables. I would do magic tricks for kids. Why? Because then their parents tip me more, right? So I enjoyed working as a, a server and, uh, and as a waiter. Now, one day, <clears throat> it was a lunchtime on like a Tuesday. And a lady came in to to eat, again, this delicious, high-quality food that is not at all processed from Chili's. And so she came in on like a Tuesday uh, for lunch, and in her purse, she had a can of pepper spray, what is called OC spray, okay? Now, she has that right. That's a good thing for her to have. I would actually encourage women to carry weapons, okay? There are 200,000 cases of sexual assault prevented just in the U.S. every year by women carrying firearms. So take that, do with it what you will. So anyway, this lady had, though, a can of OC spray, a can of pepper spray, which she has a freedom to do. We, We want her to have that. But what happened is she didn't use it properly, and right in the middle of lunch, this thing starts going off in her purse. So there's like this pepper smoke bomb going off in the middle of Chili's and people are, (coughs) they're hacking and they're crying and snot's going everywhere and we're opening the doors and turning on fans, you know, a typical Tuesday at Chili's. So that's going on and it was fantastic. Now here's why I tell you that. She has this freedom, she has this right to this thing that could be good for her. Okay? But she doesn't want to misuse it in such a way to where it harms other people. And we've seen this repeated theme throughout the last several chapters of 1 Corinthians where Paul is dealing with issues of conscience, where some Christians are comfortable with some things, but other Christians are not. And Paul's mantra, in a sense, has been that Christians have freedom, but not selfishness. Freedom, but not selfishness. It's not that we don't have freedom. It's not that if anybody is offended by what we do, we have to give up that freedom and just live as if we're slaves to someone else's conscience. But it's not the case that we just get to do whatever we want and we just get to, you know, take our pepper spray and spray it in the air wherever we want. There's a sense in which we do have freedoms, but we have to use them in a way that benefits others. So his constant refrain of, yes, he agrees, Christians have freedoms, but the Corinthians are using those freedoms not to better other people, not to help other Christians, but in a selfish way that actually ends up hurting other people. He's going to continue in that theme this morning. So let's pray, and then we will get into verse 23. Almighty God, we thank you for today. We just pray that you would bless the reading of your word and the teaching of your word. We confess to some extent all of us prefer our rights over serving others. To some extent, all of us prefer uh, what's best for us over what's best for others. So we thank you that you've instructed us in these things. We love you. We ask that you would be here during this time. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, let's look at verse 23. Starts off with this. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Okay, let's talk about what's going on here. In the ancient world, especially in the the, the language that the New Testament is written in, it's written in a a language called Koine Greek, which is kind of a Judaized street Greek. It was originally written in all capital letters with no spacing and no punctuation. So how would you know when something's a quote? You'll notice that your English editors there have put quotes around these things. The only way that you would know that something is a quote in many ancient languages, especially the Greek of the New Testament, is through context, 
okay? You're not gonna have quotation marks. It's through context. So these phrases here, all things are lawful, are, is not Paul's view. It's the Corinthians' view. We know based upon the context and we know that they claimed this phrase earlier in the letter that this is what they are saying. That is why your editors have rightly, in my opinion, put those quotation marks there, okay? So what's happening here is there are, there's this slogan going around in the church at Corinth. So let, let's back up a second. Does everyone know what a slogan or a mantra or a catchphrase is? Yes, okay, let, let me give you a few examples. What is Nike's slogan? Just do it, right? You all know it. it used to be take no prisoners, which was cooler, but now it's just do it, okay? What about this one? What, what company has this as their slogan? Taste the rainbow. Skittles, right? They have some weird commercial of a dragon eating a gnome and it's like something in the rainbow, taste the rainbow and it does the weird stuff. That's their thing. Or how about McDonald's? Their slogan is so good, you don't even need words, ready? Ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. And then there it is, okay? That's theirs, I'm loving it. Maybelline, maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's Maybelline. It does that little catchy thing at the end, right? And you remember that. Now, it's not just the case that companies have slogans and mantras and catchphrases. Cultures do as well. I'll give you a few examples from our culture. My body, my choice, which is a slogan of our culture to actually harm someone else's body, but it's a slogan, right, within our culture. Or here in Texas, come and take it. See a lot of this on the back of pickup trucks that are way too big? See a lot of that, okay? Come and take it. Instead of it being a cannon like it was originally, it's an AR or something like that. Another one that's become big in our culture is this slogan or this mantra, follow the science, which has been used for things that are political, right? Science can only tell you what germs and stuff do. It can't tell you what you ought to do. That's the realm of ethics. It can't tell you what should be mandated. That's the realm of public policy and constitutional law, but that's a phrase that's used in our culture, or I'll give you one that I really like. Now, but before I do this, I have to make sure that you guys don't mess this up. So listen, if you're from Texas, would you raise your hand? Okay, that's pretty good. I wish it was 100%, but that's pretty good. So I'm gonna say something in just a second, and you need to make sure that you don't let me down or you're gonna make me feel like an idiot, okay? You need to finish this for the other people in here that are not from Texas. Are you ready? The stars at night are big and bright. Yes, there it is. A slogan, a mantra. You see, these things are involved in different cultures because they remind us of certain things, right? Whether you're born with the makeup or not, or whether or not, you know, Texas is great or not, we're reminded by these slogans. Now listen, the Corinthian church has a slogan, but here's their slogan. All things are lawful. That's their, that's their cultural slogan. They're saying, I can do what I want. I am a big girl now, I can do what I want. All things are lawful, my freedom is the most important thing. That's their mantra. That's what they've been saying. And in the same way that these culture, I'm sorry, these slogans carry baggage within a culture, this is carrying baggage within the culture of the Corinthian church. And so you see here Paul's response. They say, all things are lawful, but Paul says, but not all things are helpful. And then they say, all things are lawful, and Paul says, but not all things are build up with their mantra, their slogan, all things are lawful. There's a sense in which Paul agrees with that. He agrees that as a Christian, you have certain freedoms. When it comes to things that the Bible has neither commanded nor forbidden, you have freedom to do those things. But Paul here is rebuking their slogan. He is not agreeing with it for two reasons. First of all, it's just straight up wrong. All things are not lawful. Paul has had to rebuke them for going to temple prostitutes. That's not lawful. 
He's had to rebuke them for getting drunk in communion. We'll see in a few weeks. That's because that's not lawful. He's had to uh, rebuke them, and we'll see this as well, for uh, abusing spiritual gifts. That's not lawful. The whole book of 1 Corinthians teaches that all things are lawful is not a true statement. But the other reason that he's rebuking them, and this is the reason specifically in this text, is because they're asking the wrong question. They're saying, I can use my freedoms however I want, even to the point of sinning, and even to the point of hurting other people, whether they're non-believers, in the case of evangelism, or believers. And so Paul's going to say, you're asking the wrong question. The question is not, can I do this? The question is, what is best? What is best for others? What builds up? What's helpful? So that's how he begins in verse 23. Verse 24. Listen to this. This is a very convicting passage. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. What the Corinthians are doing is they're saying, because I'm free in Christ, I can go to a pagan temple and I can eat demon communion, basically, and it's fine because there's only one God. And Paul will say, I agree, there is only one God, but when you worship idols, it's not that nothing stands behind the idol. Something stands behind it, not a God, there's only one God. What stands behind the idol is a demon. And they're using this quote-unquote freedom to not only harm themselves, but to harm others. And so what Paul is going to do is he's going to say, you're missing the point. And he gives here a distinctively Christian ethic. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Elsewhere in scripture, 1 Corinthians 10, 33, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many that they may be saved. We'll see in 1 Corinthians 13, 5 that it says, love does not insist on its own way. Romans 15, 1 through 2. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Notice the first part of verse 24. It doesn't say, seek your own good and when you have some left, seek the good of your neighbor. It says, do not seek your own good Rather, seek the good of your neighbor. Let me say this as strongly as I can. I have never seen a Christian consistently apply this verse in my entire life, myself included. What we do is we realize we should love God and we'll love others. But here's what that means. Make sure I care for self first. Make sure I care for family first. And then if there's anything left, then I will care for others. That is not what this text says to do. There's a ministry, and I actually really like this ministry, so this is not me dogging them. It's called, you probably heard of it, I Am Second. They have a lot of videos online where people will share their testimonies. They sit in this cool white chair and they share their testimonies. They've got rock stars, they've got professional athletes, they've got authors that will talk about their conversion. Very powerful, very encouraging, and at the end of their testimonies, they say, I am second, meaning God is first. Here is a little addendum I would like to give to that. If you're a Christian, you're third. You're not second, you're third. Love God, then love others, and then self comes after that. And so Paul is saying something that we don't like to hear, especially the Corinthians don't like to hear, which is God goes first, then others. Don't don't worry about you. But what about me getting my stuff? That's the flesh. You worry about others. You lay down your rights for the sake of others. And we don't see how subtle this is. Yes, we might buy a new car and give someone our old car, but we don't keep our old car and just buy someone a brand new one. Yes, we might give money to the poor, whatever it might be, but only if there's something left. Paul is giving us a very strong element of Christian ethics, which is to not seek your own good, but to seek the good of others. We say, I'll seek my own good, and I'll also try to help others, but this text is saying something stronger than that. So what we do is we have these subtle acts of selfishness, 
And we don't realize that they're selfish because we don't typically always have, myself included, a thoroughly biblical worldview. I'll give you a few examples of subtle acts of selfishness that you see. Spending almost all your money on you and your family. Now, there's nothing wrong. You're gonna spend the majority of your money on you and your family. That's what you're called to do. But do you consider others? Do you consider ways to give money to others? Do you bring poor people in? Do you care for others or do you not think about that? Focusing all your attention on your goals. Trying to make your life as comfortable and difficulty-free as possible. Trying to gain social influence. So where Jesus will say, don't exalt yourself. Humble yourself. God will exalt you. What we do, whether it's us, our business, our church, we try to exalt it. And then we say, but God, I will use the influence for good. You've told me to be humble. You'll exalt me. I don't care about that. I want to exalt myself. But then once I'm famous, then once people know who I am, then I'll use it for good. You see this when businesses email you about how much money they're giving to nonprofits or they email you about how they're going green or whatever the the social topic is. You'll get an email from Discount Tire, which you didn't even know had an email, and they're just, you know, they'll say something about how much money they've given away this year or whatever. What are they trying to do? They're not actually trying to care for others. It's a way to exalt self. You especially see this, and this is a very, uh, very popular thing now in our culture, which is in virtue signaling. In virtue signaling, what you're doing is you're, let, you're, you're tweeting your righteousness before men. You're letting other people see how enlightened you are by what you put on social media, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or Twitter or whatever it is. You're trying to let people see how enlightened you are. But listen, you're not actually helping people. In fact, you're benefiting from the plight of others. Some other bad thing happens in culture and you don't actually help people. You don't actually give money to the poor. If you don't like police or whatever, you don't actually become a police officer and try to make it better. You just hashtag something. And then not only have you not helped, you've benefited. Now people pat you on the back and say, what a great job of how enlightened you are. You've actually used people's problems as a way to exalt self and then acted like you've made this big sacrifice. We all see this. Sin is so subtle and this sin of selfishness permeates everything. Christians and non-Christians alike Paul is writing to Christians and he's having to say, you have Christian freedom, which is good. Don't sin with them, which you're also doing, but the Christian freedoms are good. But you're focused on the wrong thing. The question is not, what do I get out of this Christianity thing? The question is, how can I use what I've been given to serve others? Verses 25 through 26. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Let's look at that first part there. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Now, we've mentioned this a few times, so let me just uh, recap it for you. In the ancient world, you would have probably been a pagan if you had lived in Corinth. And what would happen is you would go to worship at a pagan temple. You would be a polytheist. You would worship at one of the temples of the many gods. And as you went to the temple for worship, you would do several things. You would bow before an idol. Now, again, they don't worship the idol. They worship the God that stands behind the idol, but you'd worship in front of an idol. You would pray. Sometimes you would light incense. Sometimes you would light candles. Sometimes you might, uh, might use a temple prostitute as part of your worship. Okay, uh, And so it was very different as far than, compared to Christian worship with this pagan worship. And one of the big things that you would do in the ancient world is you would offer a sacrifice to that God or to those gods. But here's the thing. I don't know if you know this or not. Even if you're from Texas, even if you love barbecue, you cannot eat an entire cow by yourself. So you would go and you would offer as this sacrifice, this cow, and you'd only eat a little bit of it, almost like their version of communion. What then happens to that extra meat? You don't want to waste it. A cow's expensive. Well, what they would do is they would sell it to the meat market. 
okay? To their version of, you know, Walmart or, you know, Market Street, if you're, you're just a billionaire, or uh, Target or whatever it might be. They'd sell it to, to them, and then the place that you would go buy meat is in the marketplace. So pagan priests doubled as butchers, and typically the best cuts of meat were the ones that had been devoted to the gods, right? You, you want to give Zeus a filet mignon. You don't want to give him some just like a little piece of sirloin or something like that. So the best cuts would be offered in honor of the gods. So the question has come up in Corinth. Can a Christian, as they're walking through the meat market, can they eat this meat that's been sacrificed to idols, that's been used in this demonic ritual? And what has been Paul's answer? Yes, his answer is yes. You can eat the meat, but you may not actually go to the temple and eat it there because then you're doing idolatry. Then you're committing idolatry. Then you're doing pagan worship. So here's what he's saying. As you're walking through the meat market, ignorance is bliss. You don't need to be wrestling through your conscience over whether or not you can buy the meat. Don't ask, just buy the meat. Christianity doesn't do kosher. Like in Judaism, the food matters where it comes from and how it's prepared. This is actually a case in many religions that are not Christianity. You see this in Islam. In Islam, uh, you're not allowed to eat pork. Food and drink has something to do with righteousness in Islam. You see this in Mormonism, where you're not allowed to drink hot caffeine or have alcohol. That's seen as somehow negative spiritually. You see this in Hinduism. In Hinduism, what do you not eat? Beef, cow, why? Because they believe in reincarnation. You could die and come back as another animal. And you don't wanna eat a cow only to find out later it was grandma right? No one wants a grandma steak. And so you stay away from it. One of the things that's unique to Christianity, and there's a bunch of things, our view of God as a trinity, the fact that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone, those are unique. But Christianity doesn't have food laws like that. Jesus is very clear. What makes you clean or unclean spiritually is not what goes into the body, but what comes out of the heart. And so he's saying, stop asking this question, act like a Christian, and just eat the meat that's in the marketplace. New Testament scholar Anthony Thistleton says this, Too many anxious thoughts about self damage Christian freedom and threaten a new bondage to moralism. So you had some Christians that were enslaved to demons, enslaved in this pagan worship, and then they became Christians, and now they're getting enslaved to legalism, which is not much better. And so Paul is just trying to say, listen, there's not demon meat, there's just Jesus meat. Jesus made the meat, not the devil, so you can eat it. And he gives the rationale for it in verse 26. Here's why. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Do you see? For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That's a quote from Psalm 24. Okay, let me unpack something here and why he's using this quote. There was a heresy in the early church known as Gnosticism, okay? Gnosticism was this idea that what's physical, what's bodily, what's corporeal was bad, and what's spiritual, that's what was good. So the goal of life is to get away from these bodies and all this fleshly, worldly, physical stuff, that yuck, get, get out of that. That's just a prison for your soul. What you need to do through enlightened knowledge, that's why it's called Gnosticism, the Greek word gnosis means knowledge. Through knowledge, you can ascend to the heavens, you can get away from what's worldly and physical, and you can just be spiritual. And it was a heresy, do you know why? Because God made the world. God made your body. God made things good. Sin has twisted them, but inherently they're good. But this idea of Gnosticism has never been completely eradicated from the Christian church, even today. We still have a tendency to think that things that are not explicitly religious are somehow bad. I'll give you an example. We have a tendency to think there are things in life that are spiritual, that are religious, and then there are things in life that are, and here's the term we use, secular. 
Nobody else uses that term other than Christians. Nobody's like, I'm gonna go to my secular job today and then eat a secular meal and then listen to secular music. Nobody says that. That's only Christians. We have this tendency to think some things are sacred and some things are secular. So to give you an example, let's name some things that we think of as being spiritual. Go ahead, just shout it out. Reading your Bible. Going to church, missions work. Praying, evangelism, these kind of things, right? We have a tendency to think those things belong to God, those are spiritual, everything else is neutral or bad. That's what we think, everything else is neutral. Here's what you need to understand. What Paul is doing by quoting this here is he is trying to say, stop thinking in those terms. Sin is bad, stay away from sin. But everything else is not just neutral or secular, it belongs to God. Jazz music is not secular, it belongs to God. And so he's saying, when you're asking the question, can I eat this meat, of course you can. Do you know why? There's no such thing as demon meat. There's no such thing as idol meat. There's only meat made by God, and he made it good. As Jeff had said a, a few sermons ago, if God didn't want us to eat animals, he wouldn't have made them out of meat, okay? So what we have to do is we have to stop being so dualistic in our thinking, or else we're doing the same thing. We, we think this text isn't really about us because we don't deal with idol meat today. We take the same principle, though, and we make the same mistake. I'll give you a few examples. Food is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Alcohol is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Nature is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. You love studying nature. You love camping. You love going for walks. You want to be a biologist? Do it. Those things belong to God. Medicine is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Go ahead and raise your hand in here if you lived 300 years ago and died from a blister that got infected. Nobody, right? For two reasons, because I said 300 years ago. And also, you didn't die from a blister. Why? Because we have modern medicine. That is a gift from God. You literally could have died from a blister that got infected and then you just die, okay? But not today. Today, you can die from other things. Technology. Technology is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Think about what a blessing that is. I, I, ha I have this magic, look at my magic rectangle. I have this magic rectangle and I can push on it. There's not even any buttons. I can push on it and it bounces off of, I don't know, the moon, I don't know how it works. And it goes to someone else's magic rectangle in their pocket in another country. And I can look at them and I can talk to them. Absolutely incredible. Art is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. You like painting you like sculpting, you like being creative, who is more creative than God? Music is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. Media and film is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. Business is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. You realize that work did not come as a result of man's fall from grace. Mankind was made to work. It became more difficult after the fall, the ground bears thorns and thistles. But this working is inherently something that is good. The body is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Fitness is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Comforts are the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Truth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. There was another debate in the early church, and this was the debate. Can Christians use pagan learning? Can Christians use philosophy? Because a lot of these great thinkers, and by a lot of them, I mean all of them before the Christian era, they're not Christians. Plotinus and Aristotle and Plato and Heraclitus and Thales and Socrates and all these kind of guys. So the question comes up in the early church, can we read those guys? And some Christians said, no, we cannot. We should just completely stay away from those things. But better and smarter Christians who would eventually culminate in Augustine would say, of course we can read these things. Do you know why? All truth belongs to God. All truth is God's truth. If Plato says two plus two is four, his religious beliefs are irrelevant to the fact that that's true. 
What Augustine will say is think about what you do if you start to say we can't study truth anywhere that it's found. You start making God, who's supposed to be truth, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You start making God the enemy of what's true, and that makes no sense. God is gracious, and so it makes sense that some people, though they're not Christians, would stumble across truth, and that truth, though, ultimately belongs to Christians. We can use it. It also belongs to the Lord and the fullness thereof. John Calvin says this, if we regard the spirit of God as the sole foundation of truth, we shall neither reject the truth itself nor despise it wherever it shall appear, unless we wish to dishonor the spirit of God. Shall we say that the philosophers are blind in their fine observation and artful description of nature? No, we cannot read the writings of the ancients on these subjects without great admiration. But if the Lord has willed that we be helped in physics, dialectic, mathematics, and other like disciplines by the work and ministry of the ungodly, let us use this assistance. For if we neglect God's gift freely offered in these arts, we ought to suffer just punishment for our sloths. Or as Thomas Aquinas would say when talking about Christians studying philosophy, those who use philosophical text and sacred teaching by subjugating them to faith do not mix water with wine, but turn water into wine, okay? Now, let me give a clarifier to what I just said. Nothing I just said is a justification to take something that God made and use it wrongfully to take it and twist it. God made plants, not only to eat, but also to provide medicines. You can't then go make heroin and say, heroin is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, okay? God made sex as a gift to a man and his wife. You cannot then use that outside of marriage and say, adultery is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything that God has made is good, but that doesn't mean that you can use it in ways that it was not made for. Because when you're doing that, you're not praising God, you're twisting something. You're taking something good and you're misusing it. I can take a Bible and hit somebody with it. The problem's not the Bible, it's the way that I'm using it. Now, what does all of this have to do with something today? You probably, when you leave here, are not going to go eat some steak offered to Zeus or some fish offered to Poseidon or something like that. What does this have to do with today? Well, I'll give you a great example because I give this speech every year around this time as we get close to Halloween, as we get close to October. So this is a question that comes up with Christians. Can we celebrate Halloween? Some Christians say, yes, we can. Others say, no, we can't. Others say, fall festival. Aha, uh -huh. I'll switch it up. <laughs> Others say, trunk or treat, which is Halloween at your church. But Halloween's still bad, but it, 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 on church grounds, it's okay. Uh, other people do Reformation Day. Uh-huh, let's get real Calvinistic up in here and let's do Reformation Day. That's what some people do. Now, let, let me tell you where this question comes up. The, the history of Halloween is pagan, okay? It started 2,000 years ago. It was a Celtic holiday called Sowen. And what they believed is this. So we start our New Year's on what day? January the 1st. Their New Year started on November the 1st. So they believed that on October the 31st, the day before November the 1st, that was a day where the spiritual world and the physical world would overlap. Demons and ghosts and stuff could walk around. So what would you do if you know that these spirits are gonna be walking around? Well, you would do what any rational person would do. You'd make scary masks to scare them off and you'd make big bonfires because we all know that ghosts hate fire, right? But you don't wanna scare off all the spirits. You, grandma might want to come visit so you put a candle in your window, which a lot of people still do today for Halloween, to guide grandmother home. The, the paganism doesn't stop there. In 43 AD, the Romans conquered the Celts, and so Sowen got combined with two other pagan holidays, Feralia, a celebration of the dead, and Pomona, or a, a celebration in honor of Pomona. Pomona is the, uh, 
was kind of the Roman god of like fruit and trees. If you've ever heard of bobbing for apples, most scholars think that's where that comes from in honor of the goddess Pomona. Well, eventually Roman Catholicism is gonna conquer really the Western world and Pope Boniface IV is gonna declare that November the 1st is All Saints Day or as we would say, all's, all, uh, all hallows. Hallowed means to be sanctified or sainted. So November the 1st becomes All Hallows, right? All Saints Day. And so the night before that is All Hallows Eve where people would go through a big party where they would dress like demons, angels, priests, monks, nuns, etc. In England at this time, poor people during All Hallows Eve would go door to door and ask for food because they were poor. They were called soul cakes is what they would give them. And over time, that mutated to now a little kid dressed like Batman standing on your porch asking for candy, okay? That's where we get Halloween from. Now, can Christians celebrate Halloween? You might say, but Zach, it has a pagan origin. You ready? So does meat sacrifice to idols. That's Paul's point. Just because something has a pagan origin doesn't mean that you can't use it today. Can you have a Christmas tree, though that was a pagan thing? Yes. Can you hunt Easter eggs, though that was a pagan thing? You can't get away from it. The day Thursday, we call it that because that was Thor's day. You can't get away from it, okay? So you don't have to. Paul's point is, Paul's point is you can take something that had a bad origin, redeem it, and use it for Christ, okay? Now, this doesn't mean you do or don't have to do Halloween. If you don't want to do it, that's totally fine. Kids, you do not get to pressure your parents into this. Your parents get to determine your life until you move out. Sorry. Welcome to the Bible, right? Now, are there some things you should stay away from that are actually sinful? Yes, because remember, Paul says, you can eat this meat. It doesn't belong to the devil just because it started in a pagan ritual, but you can't actually participate in what's evil. So you can do Halloween, but you can't sacrifice a virgin, okay? That should go without saying, but just to cover our bases, we don't want any lawsuits. Uh, You can't do a demonic seance, you can't wear a, uh, an immodest costume around someone who's not your spouse. There's some things that could make that sinful, but inherently just having fun and getting candy belongs to God because God made fun and God made the sugar that makes candy. Verses 27 through 29a. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. Let's look at the first part of that. If one of the unbelievers, meaning a lost person, invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, you want to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Let me just say this uh, because I think this is important to note. Does the Bible expect Christians to live in this weird Christian bubble and only interact with Christians or does it expect us to be around lost people? I asked two things. Does it expect this or this? And I heard yes. Uh, Does it expect the first one or the second one? The second one, okay. Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. He eats with prostitutes. Paul is reading pagan literature so he can speak to the people on Mars Hill. Paul here in 1 Corinthians says that if a lost person invites you to go to their house and you wanna go, go. That's unlike Judaism. In Judaism, they wouldn't go into a pagan's house because that would make them unclean. Paul is expecting us to be on mission. He's expecting us to be around lost people. So if you only have my Christian friends and my homeschool friends and you know Christian books and Christian movies and Christian curricula and, Christ- and that's all that you do, you're not doing what Paul is expecting the Corinthians to do. But Zach, I don't wanna fall in sin. The Corinthians are in pretty bad sin and Paul still says, you can go to a pagan's house. He continues, but if someone says to you, 
this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informs you and for the sake of conscience, I do not mean your conscience, but his. Okay, this part of the text, when I was studying for this sermon, gave me absolute fits. Because so far, it's made a lot of sense. Paul's been saying you can eat meat in the marketplace, you can eat meat just not at the temple. If you go to somebody's house, go to it and eat the meat. You can eat the meat, let's stop talking about meat. And then there's this party pooper, this mysterious someone who pops onto the scene and they're like, but this has been offered to idols. And you're like, oh, now I can't eat the meat anymore. Who is this guy? Why, can't this, this, why is this guy in the story? Well, there's two, main, there, there, there's two main positions on who that guy is. There's actually a bunch of positions on who that someone is. Do you see that in verse uh, 28? But if someone says to you of who that someone is, but really they boil down to one of two options. Is that someone a Christian or is that someone a pagan? Some people think that it's a Christian. I don't hold that view. I don't, that, that seems to multiply entities beyond necessity. Where did this third person come from? So a pagan says, Zach, do you want to come eat uh, dinner? And I say, yes. There is no third Christian to be like, you shouldn't do that because it's offered to idols, okay? Additionally, another Christian doesn't get to hinder my evangelism. It's not like somebody that's lost invites me over to have a drink and some other Christians like Zach, they're gonna be serving alcohol. So I have to call them back and say, sorry, this guy's conscience is offended at this so I can't hang out with you now. That's not the point. He's most likely talking about a pagan. Christians were not seen as distinct from Judaism for most of the early church. You even see this in the book of Acts. We were seen as like a subset of Judaism. The pagans know that the Jews are very scrupulous when it comes to their food laws. So what they would typically do is if they invited you to their home, they don't want you to sin against your conscience. So they would say to you, hey, I just want you to know this is offered to idols. That way their Jewish slash Christian friend could leave. Something similar happened to me this last week. I was getting lunch with a buddy and uh, the waiter came and brought a thing of beans and set it on the table. And he said, I just want you to know this has pork in it. Do you want me to set it on the table? Okay. And I assume because of my luscious beard that he thought I was Jewish or Muslim, but we were able to eat that. Okay. So what's probably happening is this. A Christian gets invited, is going to a pagan's house. At some point, some pagan in the house, maybe it's the host, maybe it's a family member, says, hey, we just want you to know this has been offered to Zeus. At that point, Paul is gonna say not to eat it. Why? It's not because you're gonna offend them by eating idol meat. They already are fine with idol meat. It's not because you're not allowed to eat idol meat. He's already been very clear you are allowed to eat idol meat. Here's the point of what Paul is saying. Okay, this is, the, this is the main point of this. Paul doesn't want you to allow a non-believer to think that you're compromising on your faith or joining them in pagan worship. They don't want you compromising, looking like you're compromising on your faith or joining them in pagan worship. Because it's not probably that they would just say, this has been offered to idols. They would probably bless the food like we do today in Christianity. You'd go to their house and they would say, you know, Asclepius, we eat this meat in honor of you. As we partake of this meat, we know that it comes from your hand and we love you. And then if you as a Christian are like, mmm, hum, nom, 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 nom. It looks like you don't care about your faith and it looks like you're joining them in pagan worship. And so Paul's trying to make sure that this, this lost person does not, one, think that you don't care about Christianity. They don't know what you believe. They don't know that you have freedom in Christ. But also making sure that you don't actually participate in idolatry. Now, again, you might think that this is something that the church is dealing with thousands of years ago, and we don't deal with it today, but you would be wrong. A few weeks ago, we got an email from some members here at Parkway that said, we have a Muslim neighbor, and they have a Muslim holiday coming up, and they have invited us over to dinner, but we have inquired, and we have asked, 
And the guy has said, this meat has been offered in honor of Allah. Can we go to the dinner? And we're like, the Bible speaks today, you know? These issues still come up today. So what we had to say is, the issue has nothing to do with whether or not you can eat the meat. What you don't want to do is actually worship Allah. Allah is a demon. Let that be offensive to you. He's not the Trinitarian God of the Bible. And also, you don't want your neighbor thinking that you're joining them in Islamic worship. So this doesn't mean that you literally don't have to eat the meat, but you need to let that person know. If he says, hey, we're going to have meat. It's offered in honor, honor of Allah. You may need to say something like, Hey, listen, I'm a Christian. I'm happy to eat the meat. Obviously, I can't do it in honor of Allah, but if you'll still have me for the dinner, I'm happy to go. That would be okay, as long as there's some sort of clarifier. But we had to deal with this issue. What Paul is concerned with is he doesn't want people misunderstanding your faith, and he doesn't want you to actually join in on pagan worship. I'll give you a few examples of, uh, of where this, this might happen. I had some friends invite Katie and I to dinner one time and we were excited to go and then they called us in the middle of the week and they said some Mormon missionaries came to our house and we invited them to dinner too. And I was like, <laughs> right? Not that I don't want to be evangelistic, but if there's one group of people that don't know how to party, you know. <clears throat> so we go to the dinner and I'm about to pray and bless the food, but these guys don't hold the same view of God that I do. And I don't want them to think that we're all on the same team. So I have to lovingly say, hey, I'm about to pray for this food. But when I say God, I don't mean anything like what you think. When I say Jesus, I don't mean anything like you think. They believe God is a human man, the father, a human man from another planet who became a God, who had sex with a bunch of spirit wives to produce Jesus and his brother, the devil. And you can become a God too if you do works-based righteousness. That is so far from Christianity. It is like sci-fi, okay? So I had to be very clear that is not what any Christians have ever believed, okay? So, but I had to clarify that because I don't want them thinking that we're on the same team. Or if I had a Muslim friend over, or, or actually I had a Muslim friend in high school that invited, I invited him to come to church. He invited me to go to his mosque. Now, can I go to his mosque and pray? I cannot. Can I go to his mosque and sing? I cannot. Can I sit there and listen or stand in the back? Sure, but I can't participate in false worship, nor can I let him think I'm participating in false worship. Keep that in mind. This is a big debate in missionary circles. Can I go to the temple of whatever country I'm in and just worship Jesus in my heart? I think Paul would say no. Okay, I think Paul would say no. Or let's say I have a Hindu friend and he wants to go do yoga. I could go do yoga if I wanted to. I just have to let him know I'm not honoring the gods by my body shape. I'm just stretching. Now, again, I don't do yoga. I'm a boy, right? <laughs> but to be fair, I've heard that as men get older, it's helpful to do yoga for flexibility. So eventually, you'll see me walking in the gym with a mat and my Lululemon's on, and it will be on. Yeah. That's his point. His point is, don't, you can eat meat because that's just meat. Don't participate in pagan worship, and don't let others think that you're joining them in pagan worship. Verses 29b through 30. He gives a clarifier here. So, so Paul's rule has been, do what's best for others. Elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, believers in this specific text, what's best for the conscience of somebody who is a pagan. But he's going to give a theological clarifier here at the end, verses 29b through 30. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Okay? So Paul here agrees with Christian freedom. He's on the side, theologically, of the strong, not of the weak. But he says there's something more important than that and that is caring for others. But he's gonna give a clarifier. My conscience is not bound by what other people think is good or bad. It's bound by the scriptures, but it's not bound by other people's opinions, believer or non-believer. So 
If I have a friend who's a Muslim and he thinks eating pork or eating bacon is bad, am I going to eat that when he's at my house? Yes or no? No, I'm not gonna do that when he's at my house. But when he leaves, I don't have to give up bacon forever just because this other guy doesn't like it. I just won't do it in front of him. I can eat bacon every day of my life if I want to. And if I wanna die early because of that, great. I died doing what I loved, okay? But my conscience is not bound because of that, okay? He agrees, he agrees with the person theologically, but he's saying there's something more important and that is loving others. Let me, let me give you a, a, a weird slash great story about this. So I have a buddy named Steve who's a pastor and he got a call from one of his parishioners one time and the parishioner said, Pastor Steve, will you pray for me? I have a hernia. Now you need to know for this uh, illustration, this is an umbilical hernia, one on your stomach by your belly button. He said, I've got an umbilical hernia. Will you pray for me? And he's like, well, I pray for you. Of course I'll pray for you. That's, I'm a professional prayer. That's my job. Come on up here. I'll pray for you. So the guy sits down in his office and he's like, tell me what happened. He's like, I got this hernia. I want you to pray for me. And he goes, no problem. So he gets ready to pray and the guy goes, no, wait, wait. I want you to anoint. I want you to use some of this oil, this anointing oil, right? Because the Bible says that if you're sick, you go to the elders and they'll pray for you and anoint you with oil and that you'll get well. And so my buddy had to explain the issue's not really the oil, right? You don't need the oil for, uh, to make a prayer effective, Oil is a symbol of the Spirit's presence in the Bible, and it was also thought to have medicinal qualities, which we know today that it doesn't have. And so he said to the guy, listen, we don't need to use the oil. And my friend's right, theologically. But the guy said, I'd really feel better if you use the oil. So he said, okay, this is not a matter of sin. I know we don't need the oil, but I'll do that for you. So he takes the oil, and he goes to pray and anoint the guy's head, and the guy goes, nope, I want you to put the oil on the hernia. Okay? So my buddy is rubbing a guy's hernia on his stomach... (laughs) And he's praying for healing with this oil for this guy. Now, was my buddy right theologically? Yeah, he doesn't need the oil. He certainly doesn't need to touch a wound or hernia or anything for God to bring healing. But what is he doing? Though he's right theologically, he's laying aside his preferences for the good of this guy. This guy feels more encouraged for him to do it that way. If you've ever wondered what pastors do during the week, we just pray for hernias. That's basically, that's a good 80% of our work week is doing that. Here is his point. His point is, though he agrees with the strong theologically, they're not having this God-first, other-second, self-third mentality. They're really having self-first, God-second, and others we don't care about at all. And Paul's rebuking them for that. Now, this sermon is, in a sense, has a really simple message. Sometimes we do sermons that are really technical. The next one I'm, I'm doing is very technical. We have other ones that are very theological. We have other ones that are uh, a lot of new information. This text, what God wants you to hear from this text today is something very, very simple, but it's hard to implement. And this is simply, it's simply this. Where are you doing what's best for self instead of others? Where are you using your freedoms instead of serving and caring for others? Where are you making yourself second instead of others second? That's his point. Dear Corinthians, I agree with some of your theology on this. Your heart is terrible. I agree with your head, but your heart is terrible is awful. Where do you need to repent? Where do you need to serve others? Where do you need to care for others? Our ultimate example on this to end with the gospel is Christ, who though he's God, remaining God, took on humanity and served. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. God in the flesh comes and serves humans who spit on him and who hate him and who've sinned against him. How much more of an example do you need? And he's not just an example because we can't do it like him. We're sinners, we're broken. So rather, he does it for us. 
what God credits to our account, all the places we fail to love and serve others, all the places where we're selfish, we only get because Christ was not selfish, because Christ was gracious, because Christ was kind. Let's pray as we transition into a time of communion. Almighty God, we thank you for this text that though it seems obscure, though it seems kind of weird, though it seems like it's just about idol meat, we confess that these issues we deal with today. There are many places where we exalt self over others. There are many places where we don't live missionally. There are many places where we, uh, uh, we, we don't see how Christian freedom should play into certain issues going on around us, whether it's in church or in culture. We thank you that you love us, that you haven't given us some outdated book. You've given us a book that's very relevant as long as we're understanding it rightly. So we love you and we thank you. It's in Christ's name, amen.